Last week, Luke did such a great job, didn't he? It was such a blessing just uh, as he talked about the redemption of, of Eden and we, we talked about just a fuller picture of, of, of resurrection and, and, and what that looks like. We talked a lot about the effects of sin and, and, and some of the possibilities of what it will look like and what it might be like when the curse is removed. When, when, when life just looks different with God, when, when all sin is, is gone, when there's no greed and there's no selfishness, no desire for, for power or any of those kinds of things, uh, just what life will look like as we live uh, forever with God. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That ultimately, as we talk about these things, as we talk about God and we talk about the good things of God, we want to be mindful and we want to be reminded that the ultimate reward, the ultimate good thing when we get to thinking about heaven is really being together with God forever and ever and ever. To be with Him and in, in all of His glory and all of His splendor and all of His power, all of His love, all of these things encompassing who He is. You see, God's a good God, and he gives good gifts. James tells us this. It says that for us to not be fooled, but that every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow, right? And he takes great pleasure in the gifts that he gives to us, and he takes pleasure in seeing us enjoy those gifts. Imagine yourself if you gave a gift to your kid, a birthday present or a Christmas present, and then you turned around and you were upset because they seemed to be enjoying the gift too much, right? The, the, the flip side of this, though, is, is, is that when those gifts that are given to God become an idol in our lives, they, they, they can tend to, to move into a place where, where they're not what they were intended to be. Um, you, you see, that's when we take those things and, and we inject those things into our lives instead of God, not with God. And all of these things are meant to be with Him and in Him, not in spi- or instead of Him. It's why we're supposed to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and allow all things in our lives to be added under that. Because when we do that, we begin to live in the right order and the right perspective of life. When we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness... We, we establish the, the most important thing in our lives. And then we allow the things that, to come into our lives, all of the good gifts and all of the things that we're talking about when we start talking about heaven and thinking about, they come into their rightful place. And on this life in particular, when we get that right, when we get that structure right, it actually allows us to enjoy the gifts and the good things of God in a way that we're intended to. Because if those things are uh, holding a place in our lives where we believe that they're, they're giving us identity, then they've lost they're positioned in that. There's, there's now too much pressure on the gift. The gift is, it, it has an expectation that's too high for it to actually even to, uh, to, to live into into our own lives. And we'll only ultimately be frustrated by those things. But when it's God first, then those things find their right place. But to be in heaven is to be with God. And where God is, it's heaven. So when God revealed himself 
to Moses, we want to start to look at some of the characteristics because at the end of the day here, it's, it, there's two really big things. It's, it's pretty rough following Luke, for one thing. And then the, the other thing is this, is that I'm tr- gonna tr- we're going to try to look at and, and get a hold of a little bit of the characteristics of God to begin to think about what does this look like to be with God? Because at the end of the day, it's going to be infinitely more and better and, and more awesome and amazing than anything that we could ever come up with or ever imagine right here and right now. It, it's going to be bigger. It's going to be much, much more. But God, when he revealed himself to Moses, God begins to reveal characteristics throughout his word about who he is that help us to start to put together a picture and a better understanding of who God is. Our greatest revelation, really, that we get is Jesus. First uh, John 1, 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus is the one who begins to help us to get the fuller picture, the better idea, the more complete picture of who God is. He, he's, he, he's telling us that he's doing the things that the Father is doing. He's saying the things that the Father is saying. He says, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And, and so Jesus is this revelation for us that better explains more and more about the character and the nature and the goodness of God and who he is. When God talked to Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses this. He simply said, I am that I am. You tell them that's who I am. I am that I am. Not the I was, not the I will be, but the I am. The I am that I am. The one who is complete within himself, it's, a, it's, it's called a tetragrammaton, and, and, and it's, the, it's the consonants y, uh, YWVH, and we would say Yahweh or Jehovah, but for the Jews, it was the unspeakable name of God. It was, it was this idea of this God who was completely other than. He's a paradox beyond our ability to fully understand, yet he is closer than the air that you're breathing right now. And so as we see him more and more, we begin to look and we want to see God in all of his infinite characteristics. Now this is important to understand that when we start talking about an infinite God, that means that he is infinitely everything. That there is nothing finite about him. If there was any one thing that was finite about God, it would, it would, he would cease to be infinite. So he's infinitely all of the characteristics that he begins to reveal uh, about himself through Scripture. And the first one we're going to look at is that he is holy. God is holy. And, And to be holy means to be set apart. The very word itself means to be set apart. It means to be completely and entirely other than. It means that God isn't his creation. He, isn't, he doesn't make up the earth and the rocks and the sea and the mountains and those kinds of things. He doesn't compose of himself the universe. He's other than that. He's greater than that. He's outside of it. He's the creator of those things, but he is not limited by those things. You see, we understand ourselves to be created in the image of God. And what does that mean? Well, that means this. That means that you're a little bit like God, but God is nothing like you and I. 
He is completely holy and other than. All descriptions that when we look in the Bible and we see descriptions of the visions that people have as they, as they look and somehow they, they penetrate the, 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 the barrier there and they see into the heavenly realms. We see John as he's looking into the, the as he gives us revelation. We see uh, Daniel. We see these guys and we see these, these glimpses that they get. And whenever they start to discuss these, these visions, they start using terminology like, he had the appearance like a man. Things like it was the appearance of this or that. And what they're saying is that this was a realm and this was a vision and and it was completely different and unexplainable by our terms. What they're trying to grasp at things that they say, it was kind of like this. If I could explain it to you in terms that you could understand, it would be kind of like this, but it really wasn't. And so this whole realm, God is completely holy. He is perfect in his being, in his word, and his action. He is holy. And he calls us to be holy. First uh, Peter 1.16 says, be holy as I am holy. So there's a call on our lives even to holiness. And we'll look at that in a minute. One of his other characteristics is this, is he is eternal. God always has been. He has always been. He is outside of time. He is not constrained by time. He's the creator of time. Before time began, and time only began at the time that there was an event, time simply, really, for us, is just a measurement between events. It's for the created. It's not for the creator. Before there was ever any event, he was. He was in existence. He has always been. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He extends backwards forever and forward forever. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind, especially the backwards forever. I can almost think about the, the, the forever forward almost, but forever backwards you lost me there. I, I, I can't get that. But this is part of the nature and the character of God. And again, God is a paradox. He is a mystery on so many levels. God is just. He is just. And God is the only one who is able, because of his characteristics, because of his infinitude, to be perfectly and rightly just. When God brings judgment, it's right, and it's always right. And, and, and therefore, uh, his love is present in his justice. Um, he is just, but yet justice, when it serves its intended purpose, which is to reveal to us the reality of our sinfulness, justice then releases his mercy and his graciousness as well. See, if he's not just, he's not good. And that's all there is to it. If he doesn't judge what's wrong in the world, then if he accepts it, if he brushes it under the carpet, he agrees with it. It mars his character, and we look at him and we say he is not good because he went along with this. God will not be in that position. He can't. He's perfectly just. And we really like justice I mean, if you really start to admit it, like, like you start watching some movies or something, you know, like, I don't know, like 007 or something, or I don't know. Maybe ever watch any of those movies? You guys ever? Come on, hands up. You watch them? Ever watch them? 
Shame on you guys for watching those kind of movies. Anyway, um, we have a good guy generally. We have a bad guy, right? Just kidding. We have like a bad guy and a good guy. And the, and the bad guy's doing all this rotten stuff, and he's doing horrible things to all these people. And you know what we want from him? We want him to die. We do. You know what I mean? And we don't want him just to step out into the street and unknowingly get run over by a bus. We want him to die a slow and painful death knowing all of the bad stuff that he did, right? And we really can't come to that spot because we don't know enough. But see, when God start, when we start to look at the regular, the, the rest of the thing, God's omniscience, his all-knowing, his omnipresence, that he's been everywhere, that all of those things, I see, it, it, it makes it to where God is the one who is right at the end of the day. And, and something in our spirit resonates with the reality of justice and the rightness of justice as well. God is right, and he's always right. He's perfect in his justness, and all people in all situations are going to be judged through his all-knowing and unchangeable character. And he's the only one who can rightly do that. He is omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. God holds all power, all of it. He's not the power of the universe. He's not the energy of the universe. He's greater than that. You could blow up all of the atoms in the universe right now and you wouldn't blow God up because he's greater than that. He's outside of it. He's holy. He's set apart. He is outside. He holds all power and he's greater. He's created all energy and he's bigger than that. There is nothing that is outside of his scope of power or ability and this world is not out of control. The world is actually going exactly as he is allowing it to go today. There is no wrestling for power. There is no, we're not sitting back as believers going, oh man, it sure seems like we're losing this one out there. Ultimately, God wins. And it's foreordained that he will win and it will have no other outcome. He is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is all places simultaneously. There is no place where God is not. The psalmist talked about this. He says, I could, I could, arise to, I could go to the highest heights of heaven or I could go down to Sheol and where could I ever hide? Where could I hide from your presence? And the answer to that was you can't. The God is everywhere. And we should live like that. We should really begin to allow that to be a motivator in our lives because, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, there's a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't be do if I just knew and understand all the time that Jesus is right here beside me. If we lived like that, it would begin to change. But he's all places. There, there is, there is, uh, he's all places simultaneously. You and I are never alone. You're never alone. You may feel alone at times, but we're never truly alone. And if he has deemed it so, it is so. Because he is all places simultaneously, and he is outside of time and space. So when he is, Jesus is, is said to be the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, or 1 Peter 1, where he talks about that it was foreordained that, that he would, would, um, that he would come and, and that in the latter days we get to see this, but it was always the plan. 
for all eternity past. That God hasn't ever changed his mind. He didn't develop a new plan or any of those kinds of things. And that once God determined that it would be done, it was done. Why? Because God occupies all time simultaneously too. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees it all. He understands it all. He occupies all of these things. He's all places simultaneously. And he's omniscient. He knows all things. You see, again, it's the idea of infinity. If he's, if he's limited by where he can be and when he can be there, then he's not infinite. If he's limited by what he can do or if he has to seek some other power source outside of himself, then he's not infinite in power. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Ooh. He knows everything. Everything. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God does not learn. He's never had to learn. There was nobody who taught God. He didn't sit under any teaching or any tutelage of any type. He is always infinitely knowing. He knows all things. And he knows everything about us. And he still loves us. And we can actually take some heart in some of those kinds of things because even though he knows everything about you and me, he still made a way for us to have a relationship. And because he knows everything about you and me, what that means is that there's no skeleton that's going to jump out of the closet and present itself before God, and then he's going to be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was going on or that you would have done that. And then he would change his mind, which he can't do either, right? But he knows all things. He knows everything about us. And like I've told you before, and I'll say it again, if you, knew, if you knew everything about me that God knows about me, you wouldn't listen to one word I have to say. It's just the true story. But if I knew about you, what God knows about you, I would have locked the door, and I wouldn't let you in this morning. So we can settle into God's grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness, and we can extend that to one another. But this is a God who knows everything. He is immutable. He is unchanging. God will never change the I am that I am. He can't change. See, because to change would mean to, be, to go from either worse to better or from better to worse, and he can do neither of those things. He's not swayed by culture or by what's popular. God is immutable. He is unchanging. The truth that God has professed, the, the reality that God lays out for us is an unchanging thing. It will never change. It doesn't matter what 51% of the people think about anything. The reality of it is, is that truth does not bow to belief. Belief must bow to truth. And that's just the way it has to be. But God is unchanging and he will never, ever, ever change. God is self-sufficient. He is in need of nothing. God has no needs. God didn't need to make us. He, didn't, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't out there in the universe going, I'm really lonely, so I'm going to make some people. No, God had perfect relationship within himself. It, it, it's, it's part of the, 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 the mystery and the beauty of the Trinity that, that it represents diversity brought into perfect unity. It represents relationship that God has within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion, in perfect relationship for all eternity past. He is in need of nothing. 
As a matter of fact, if the whole world were atheists, it would change nothing about God. If the whole world became believers, it would add nothing to God and who he is and his character. He is completely and totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, but he interacts with us out of love. And he is not needing you to do something here. He doesn't need us to, he's not sitting back and going, man, if those guys would just get it together, if they just do this and do this and do this and do this, then I could move forward with, no, his plan is moving forward. It's moving forward today and nothing can stop it. Now, there's an element, I think, in there of, of some, some free will and some of the things that, that we do, some of the opportunities that God gives to us to be a part of what he is doing. It, it, it was kind of like, it's kind of like we get on a, uh, um, we get on a ship, and, and that ship has a predetermined port that it's going to, and, and, and so that ship, as it sails, it's going there, it's going to this port. Now, the people on the boat... They're doing their thing. They're playing. They're doing different things. They're doing different jobs. They're sleeping. They're working. Whatever all they're doing, they're doing those things on that boat, but that boat is going to that port. It's kind of a little idea of how we sit with this, that, that God's, God's plans will not be thwarted because we did or did not do something. He's sovereign, and, and he, uh, again, he holds all power. He is faithful. And he's faithful to you and I when we're faithless, Romans tells us. That even when we're faithless, he's faithful for he cannot deny himself. And if you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit has indwelled you. And you're marked and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And there is a promise that God has for you that no one can ever uh, take you away. That he will never leave you. That he will never forsake you. That he has loved you with an everlasting love. And that he will be faithful to you. He has cut covenant with you. God is the God who cuts covenant. We see it in, in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham when God cuts this covenant and they lay out these carcasses and the, the idea of covenant was that you would lay out these carcasses and then the people would walk through them who were entering into a covenant together and that was basically the idea if you don't if you don't do your end of it then it, it, that's what you're going to basically look like kind of a thing it's going to be death for you and so they lay out these things and 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 god it says god put abraham to sleep and then god walked through those and he established a covenant with, with Abraham because God put Abraham to sleep because he knew that Abraham would never be able to fulfill his end of the covenant. And it was God who cut the covenant with him. It was God who said he would be faithful. It was God who said he would never leave him or forsake him or any of those kinds of things. And Jesus has established a new covenant with you and I, one in which his blood, he poured out his blood to establish a new covenant and when we're in Christ, the Bible says that your life is held in his righteous right hand and no one can remove it. Nobody. That, that it is there and that it is secure in that. God is loving. We love because he first loved us. Love is not God, but God is love. And it is God who has established his all-knowing, his all-powerful, his infinitude of every way, he has established what love looks like. 
And God is the God who always loves in the best interest of those whom he is loving. Sometimes for us that doesn't always feel so great because we want it to go sometimes the way we want it to go, but God is always loving you in the perfect way, in the best interest of who you are and where he's taking you. His love is agape love. It's the highest form of love in the Greek, in, in the Greek language, and it's a love that is without condition. It's not based on what you're doing. It's not based on how well you're performing. It's not based on what you are or aren't doing or how hard you're working or any of those kinds of things. He's not a God who loves you more when you're doing well, and he's not a God who loves you less when you're doing poorly. He's unchanging. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Therefore, his love is consistent, and it is the same for us yesterday, today, and forever. And for those who reject God, his love for them is unchanging. It's unwavering. In this, See, sometimes we're like that. We say, well, how can a God create people? Why would God create people who he knows ultimately because he knows all things will reject him? And I would say this, it's because his love is without condition. If his love was conditional, he would only allow those to exist that he knew would accept them. That would be a conditional love. His love is unconditional. Regardless of who our, what our response is back to God, his response to us is love. He's glorious. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is glorious. His glory is his magnificence. It's his perfection. It's his goodness. It's his love. It's his faithfulness. In John 17, when Jesus is is praying, and he's praying to the Father on our behalf, part of that prayer says, God, just I want them to see the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. The glory that's always been. It's his deep desire that we would be with him and that we would see that. And he is even sharing his glory with his church and with his people. Those are some of the, some of the characteristics of God. They're not exhaustive. That's not all of them. But one thing to think about this is that, is that the characteristics of God are, are, are a way of looking at the whole of God. But, but they, don't, they don't operate independently. In, in, in other words, God doesn't focus on one attribute of his and then kind of forget about another one. They all operate together all of the time. Always. See, God's justice includes his omniscience and his omnipotence, his love, all of those kinds of things. You see, it says in 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy, that there's this call to holiness on us, right? And, and Hebrews 12.14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness then becomes this thing that we have to possess, and, and, and how do we possess that? Well, we, we possess it only through the work, the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. And, and it's the place where, again, that these things are working simultaneously. His love and his justice are very much evident on the cross. 
His demand for justice says that, that there must be a payment for what is wrong. It must be made right. It must be paid for. But his love says, I'll do it for you. I'll sit in your place and I'll offer you back that mercy. And like I said earlier, see, justice, when it fulfills its right workings in our life, which is to reveal our sin, it reveals the reality of our need for God. When we, when we become a, a penitent sinner, when we recognize that and we repent and we turn back to God, it releases out of God His mercy and His grace and His love in that response at the cross. He's all-powerful. It was only him that could do it. Only God could pay the penalty for all of humanity. It was only God and his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness that could be given as a substitute for the whole world. And his omnipresence means, means, that, is, it has, means that it's for all time and that, and that God has been everywhere. His omnipresence means that once we are saved and we've, we've re received Christ, that we never ever walk alone again, that he is with us and that he will walk with us regardless of what's going on in our lives. Again, his omniscience, it means he knows all things. It means that no skeleton will jump out of the closet and surprise him and then he might change his mind, which is his immutability. So thankfully, God can never change his mind about you. And because he knows all things about us, and he's all-powerful, he has the ability to forgive everything that we've ever done. I can't even keep track of all the wrong stuff I've done. But God knows it all. And Jesus paid the penalty for every bit of it. He's self-sufficient. He's not doing it because he's codependent or because he has an unhealthy need or relationship with us or desire for us. He's completely self-sufficient in this work, and he's done it just because he's loving, faithful, good God. He's faithful. He will never leave us or forsake us. It says that he has loved us with an everlasting love. Love motivated the whole thing, and then he is glorious and has said that he will share his glory with his church. The amazing thing about heaven won't be the amazing things that we're able to do, but who we will be with. The greatest reward will be just sitting in his presence because his presence is satisfaction and his absence his thirst. Psalm 48, 13, 14. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. See, in heaven, we will never leave God's presence, nor will we ever want to. All things will be done in his presence. We will see God in the sciences. We'll see him in physics. We'll see him in mathematics, design, art, music, all giftings, all knowledge. All pleasure will point back to its source. Randy Alcorn says, all secondary joys are derivative in nature. They cannot be separated from God. Flowers are beautiful because God is beautiful. Rainbows are stunning because God is stunning. Sports are fun because God is fun. Study is rewarding because God is rewarding. Work is fulfilling because God is fulfilling. You see, we will be constantly be more and more amazed at God and more in love with God. It will never get old. It will only deepen and intensify. And you and I will grow spiritually 
forever. We will never come to the point where we've understood the fullness of an infinite God. We're never going to get there. We'll never be his equal. To do so, would to be his equal, really, to understand him in that way. And so, therefore, we will grow forever and ever and ever in depth and understanding and relationship to God. He's going to dwell with us fully and freely. And our relationship will grow forever and ever. You see, he's the one that spoke the universe and it came into being. And he has known you in his mind for all eternity past. All of that past stuff, he's always known you. And he's known exactly when you would come in. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And all of the days of your life were written in his book before one had come to pass. He has loved you. He has gifted you. He's given you a ministry. He's purchased your salvation. And he's walking with you now. And when our days are done, he's going to receive us and reward us. But then just like the 24 elders, we'll throw those crowns right back down at his feet because all works will glorify the one who began them. Eternity will not be long enough to know him completely or to praise him for all of his goodness. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that the best thing about heaven and what we have to look forward to is you. Lord, we thank you that you are infinitely all things and you're beyond our comprehension, that we can't fit you in here. And we're grateful for that because to fit you in here into our minds would make you much less than God. It would make you a a finite God, but you are an infinite God. You are infinitely all things. You have infinite ability and power and knowing and, and you cannot change faithful to us and you've given us your word and you've sent your son to pay the penalty for sin so that we might have your righteousness so that we might live with you forever that we might enjoy you forever and lord until that time comes until we are received by you may we live out the first part of that creed may we may we glorify you in all that we do may all that we do here lord uh just be uh may we recognize that all good things uh, originate from you May we be quick to tell the world out there the source of every good thing that's here. And Lord, may we uh, lead others to come to know you. Again, that heaven might be a bit more crowded. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.